Welcome to City Breaks London, episode 10, Fleet Street. Just like every other City Breaks episode, I'm hoping to offer little snippets of history, a dose or two of culture, things that it'll be handy to know in order to walk up Fleet Street with what you might call a seeing eye. It's not one of those London streets where it's immediately obvious that you are surrounded by history, but you absolutely are, and much of it quite recent history too. Fleet Street's heyday was probably the 20th century. And in addition, I'm going to be popping into two places which you can actually visit today, namely St Bride's Church at one end, one of London's very well-known churches, whose own website tells us that it sees its role as being the spiritual home of the media. And then secondly, we're going into a little courtyard, a little way off Fleet Street, to visit the home of one Samuel Johnson, that great 18th century man of letters who lived here in the heart of literary London and spent a good number of years upstairs in the attic of the house which you can visit today, toiling away, writing the first proper dictionary of the English language. But let's start by going back further in history again to around 1500, when the wonderfully named Winkin de Ward, his surname is spelt like the word word but with an extra E on it, started the whole thing going by setting up a printing shop in Shoe Lane, just off Fleet Street. He did rather well, other printers and publishers followed along, and trade was good because they were quite near the four inns of court, which we talked about in last week's episode, where there were lots of people who wanted to buy books and were interested in printed works. And so the area got a bit of a reputation. So much so that in 1702, the very first issue of London's very first daily newspaper, the Daily Courant, was published in Fleet Street. A couple of things happened in the 19th century to mean that newspapers took off even more. One of those things was the repealing of the Paper Duty Act in 1858. If paper was going to become cheaper, then so were newspapers. Around the same time, something called the Newspaper Tax was repealed. More good news for the industry. It expanded, particularly in Fleet Street, until by the 1880s, many people were buying something from what was called the Penny Press. So newspapers daily papers, which cost one penny each. Gradually, newspapers got together, there were takeovers, and gradually, the big names that we knew in the 20th century started to emerge. Some of those big names were based actually in Fleet Street, the Daily Express, for example, and the Daily Telegraph, many others in little streets just off Fleet Street. And by the middle of the 20th century, most households in Britain brought a daily paper, which had been produced in Fleet Street, and the very words Fleet Street were synonymous for the newspaper trade. It was really in the 1980s when things began to change. News International owner Rupert Murdoch decided he was going to do something about the stranglehold that the printing unions held over the newspaper trade. Things got pretty nasty. Many Fleet Street print staff were sacked, new staff were hired from a different union, and they all moved out to Wapping where modern computer-operated technology was going to replace the old printing presses. It was a major dispute, featuring lots of violent protests in Fleet Street itself and out at Wapping. But eventually the deed was done, News International moved out, other publishers followed, and so it was no longer in Fleet Street that the newspaper industry was based, but rather at Canary Wharf and Southwark. Some of the old newspaper offices are still there, They're listed buildings, in fact, but they've been repurposed. For, by way of example, companies like Goldman Sachs, 
if you are familiar with the idea that journalism goes hand in hand with some quite serious drinking, then it won't surprise you to know that there are various pubs still operating in Fleet Street today which are throwbacks to this era and which you can pop into. There is, for example, the Old Cheshire Cheese, which is at number 145 Fleet Street, and which was such an institution that it was actually the first building to be rebuilt after the Great Fire. There is still today a sign outside listing the 15 monarchs who have reigned since the pub was opened. It's known to have been a favourite of Charles Dickens and also of P.G. Wodehouse. And I found a nice description of it in a book called London by Tube by Christopher Wynne. It is famous, he writes, for its gloomy interior caused by lack of natural light and with its brown glass windows and creaking dark wood and sawdust decor is highly atmospheric. And then there's Albino's, known to have been a favourite haunt of G.K. Chesterton, who would work there for hours, getting progressively drunker, and who referred to the time he spent there as a time for, quote, hard drinking and hard thinking. In his introduction to his novel, Towards the End of the Morning, the author Michael Frayne remembers time spent in Albino's. This was, I think, in the 1950s, so absolutely in the heyday of Fleet Street, and he remembers the sort of customer you would meet, describing them as, quote, the sort of fellow journalists who had pretensions to be members of a learned profession themselves, ruined scholars who could review you at short notice a book about Lord Northcliffe or Hugh Kingsmill, or knock you out a belligerently authoritative think-piece on the proper constitutional relationship between Crown and Woolsack. In common with so many other institutions at that time, it didn't encourage women, positively discouraged them in fact. And Michael Frayne writes quite amusingly about the reception they got if they tried to get in. Any woman who insisted was not allowed to disturb the collegiate atmosphere of the bar itself, but was directed to a room at the back, furnished with chairs and tables, where Elmer's grand head-waiter would ritually shame her by forcing one of the more elderly and infirm old soaks taking refuge there to give up his seat to her. So Fleet Street has long been the haunt of writers and journalists, and so it's no surprise to find that very many famous writers are known to be connected with it. Over the centuries, regulars in the Fleet Street taverns have included Ben Johnson, John Milton, John Dryden, Oliver Goldsmith and Charles Lamb. And Fleet Street itself has been the setting for many a work of literature. The barber Sweeney Todd is traditionally said to have lived and worked in Fleet Street, for example. That's where he would murder his customers and serve their remains as pie fillings. It's also mentioned in a number of Charles Dickens' works. In Pickwick Papers, for example, the famous Pickwick Club was said to be in Fleet Street, as was Telson's Bank, which plays a role in A Tale of Two Cities. And I thought it would be fun to mention a number of novels which have written very colourfully about Fleet Street and just have a look at some of the things they had to say about it. Perhaps the archetypal Fleet Street novel is Evelyn War's Scoop, which tells the story of William Boot, who is quietly fulfilling his role writing the nature column for a newspaper until he is mistaken for a foreign correspondent and finds himself being sent off as a war correspondent to cover a civil war in a fictional African country. Everything he does is wrong, and the work becomes a parody of the very worst aspects of foreign correspondents, who rush in, get stuff wrong, don't know what they're talking about, file their copy anyway, and create all sorts of mayhem. 
Listen to this by way of example. Why, once Jakes went out to cover a revolution in one of the Balkan capitals, he overslept in his carriage, woke up at the wrong station, didn't know any different, got out, went straight to a hotel, and cabled off a thousand-word story about barricades in the streets, flaming churches, machine guns answering the rattle of his typewriter, as he wrote. Well, they were pretty surprised at his office, getting a story like that from the wrong country, but they trusted Jake's and splashed it in six national newspapers. That day, every special in Europe got orders to rush to the new revolution. Everything seemed quiet enough, but it was as much as their jobs were worth to say so, with Jake's filing a thousand words of blood and thunder a day, so they chimed in too. Government stocks dropped, financial panic, state of emergency declared, army mobilised, famine, mutiny. And in less than a week, there was an honest-to-God revolution underway, just as Jake's had said. There's the power of the press for you. Another character addresses the idea that newspapers don't tell you the truth, and begs to differ. Quote, I read the newspapers with lively interest. It is seldom that they are absolutely point-blank wrong. That is the popular belief, but those who are in the know can usually discern an embryo of truth, a little grit of fact, at the core of a pearl, round which have been deposited the delicate layers of ornament. It's actually a number of years since I've read Scoop, but I think I'm heading back there very soon. And then there's the novel I just referred to, Towards the End of the Morning by Michael Frayne, published in 1967, which records the tribulations of one John Dyson, who works in newspapers, but really would like to branch out into that new, exciting arena, television. He paints a picture, which I guess must have some truth in it, but must be hugely exaggerated, of a louche set of journalists who don't seem to have much work to do, and who can always find time for a drink or six. Here he is on their daily routine. Various members of the staff emerged from hand and wall passage during the last dark hour of the morning walked with an air of sober responsibility towards the main entrance, greeted the commissionaire, vanished upstairs in the lift to telephone their friends and draw their expenses before going out again to have lunch. Fleet Street was often referred to as the Street of Ink, but in fact you can begin to see why it was also sometimes called the Street of Shame. I came across some reports online from a collection of journalists who were just leaving in the 1980s, many of them having worked for several decades in Fleet Street and they were reminiscing about what life had been like there. Mr Sheriff, for example, leaving Fleet Street after 32 years, during which time he had eventually become the Post's London chief reporter. He remembers his first day ever there, walking into a smoke-filled newsroom and hearing the sound of typewriters being bashed about. He recalls watching lorries with large rolls of paper, struggling to get down the side streets to the printing presses and he remembers lots of pubs filled with journalists and printers. It was all ramshackle, nothing worked very well. For example, quote, The phones didn't even work properly. I would be amazed if I called someone and it connected the first time. They too reminisced about the pubs, telling us which paper liked which pub. The Daily Telegraph apparently favoured the King and Keys, while the Express used the Red Lion. Mirror reporters were said to favour the White Hart, which was known as the stab in the back. Such was its reputation as being the place to go if you wanted to conduct some dark office politics. They too remembered the Elvino's wine bar and the fact that it didn't serve women until 1982, until, as they put it, a court case was brought by a female journalist. 
And I've come across too some interesting stories from female journalists who were a rare breed in Fleet Street in the 1970s and 80s, but some of whom were nevertheless very determined to make it in this very male world. One of their number, Liz Hodgkinson, wrote a book about her experiences, calling it Ladies of the Street. And she makes it clear that one of the things she was expected to do was join in with the hard-drinking atmosphere. Here she is on that. When I was at the People, we'd have a conference at 11am till about noon. Then the editor would open his drinks cabinet. All Fleet Street editors had one. Then we'd take a taxi to the Savoy or Claridge's for more drinks. We'd come back about 4pm and then go out drinking again around 5. The alcohol flowed like water in Fleet Street. She recalls that in those days there were about 150 people working in editorial and four of them were women. Here she is describing what it was like for her working at the Sun in the late 1970s and early 1980s. There were about a dozen female reporters and we all sat together in a little room which was known as the Piranha Pool. I was working on an undercover job once for a newspaper and rang an editor from a payphone to check in with him. He asked, Are you in danger, pet? I replied, Yes, I am. To which he replied, Oh, good. And there's more about the lives of the female journalists in the 70s and 80s in the second book called The Fleet Street Girls, written by Julie Welsh. She recalls phoning in her first ever football report to The Observer when, quote, an entire room of men fell silent. But, heart in mouth, she ploughed on, dictated her copy, and was very pleased with herself by the end because, quote, she'd done it. She was the first ever female football reporter. She remembers getting into trouble with the National Union of Journalists, who nearly called a strike because she dared to write an article, even though she was a, quote, mere secretary. She pointed out that men who weren't journalists had been allowed to write for the same pages, but they were having none of it. And that, as she puts it, was only one of many battles. Here's part of the blurb from the back of the book which gives the flavour. The Fleet Street Girls is a fascinating story of the hopes and despairs, triumphs and tribulations of a group of women in the glitzy heyday of journalism, where they could be interviewing Elton John one moment and ducking flying bullets or fighting off the sex pests the next. At a time when Fleet Street was the biggest, cosiest, all-male club you can imagine, and the interests of half the human race were consigned to the women's page in the paper, we follow Julie and her contemporaries through dramas, excitement and sheer fun in their battle to make sure that women's voices were heard. So, Fleet Street, I can't promise that you're going to see any of that, really, except for the actual pubs and the Elvinos, but I like to think you might remember some of it as you wander along. And if you do want to go in somewhere, I have two suggestions for places very close by, both of which are very much worth a visit. And the first one is Dr Johnson's House, which is at 17 Gough Square, just off Fleet Street, and which is open as a museum. Of course Dr Johnson, whose dates are 1709 to 1784, wouldn't have lived anywhere but in or just off Fleet Street, because that was the centre of writing and journalism and those were his interests. He it was who said, no man but a blockhead ever wrote except for money. He wrote, he published, he was pleased to be paid for it. What did he write? Well, scores of popular essays, poems, pamphlets, periodicals, sermons, literary biographies, books of literary criticism. Oh yes, and that dictionary. 
the very first proper full-length dictionary of the English language. His first job, as far as we know, was writing for The Gentleman's Magazine. And because he had the good fortune to be living through the 18th century, which saw a real growth of ideas and thinking and publishing, I don't think he ever ran out of things to write. And it's nice to visit his house because it's been restored as far as possible to represent how it was when he lived in it. And from a visit there, you'll get a flavour of the man and a flavour of literary London in the 18th century. Johnson himself was a strange-looking man, not least because when he was a child he suffered from scrofula and smallpox, so his skin was in a terrible condition. He was very tall and very large, and he walked with a stoop, almost bent double, as people who knew him commented, and he had a strange selection of tics and habits. Here's one of his contemporaries describing him. His mouth is almost constantly opening and shutting, as if he were chewing. He has a strange method of frequently twirling his fingers and twisting his hands. His body is in constant agitation, seesawing up and down. But his mind was something else. He was popular, he was witty, people loved to read what he'd written, and indeed to quote him. And much of what you can see in the house if you go to visit relates to his biggest and best-known project, namely the writing of the dictionary. It's believed that Samuel Johnson toiled for several years up in the attic of this house, which you can visit today, and where eventually he and the five assistants who were helping him managed to produce no fewer than 42,000 definitions of English words. It was authoritative, it was an instant success, it went to several new editions, but nonetheless, every now and then, he would slip in something as a little bit of a joke. And one of the famous examples is actually quite self-deprecating. A lexicographer, he said, is a writer of dictionaries, a harmless drudge. His other well-known definition is that of oats, which he said were a grain which in England is generally given to horses, but which in Scotland supports the people. He was, however, extremely proud of his dictionary, and of all the work that had gone into it, and of the speed with which it had been accomplished. He very much enjoyed hearing that over in France, the Académie Française had 40 members, and that they had spent 40 years writing their dictionary when he had written his in just a few years. I read somewhere that the project took nine years, but I know Johnson was rather given to saying that he had done it pretty much in three. Anyway, this is his response when he heard about the learned brethren over in France. Let me see. 40 times 40 is 1600. As three to 1600, so is the proportion of one Englishman to a Frenchman. And there was another occasion when he made fun of himself gently. So a lady asked him why he'd managed to get a wrong definition in there. A pastern, she said, is a horse's ankle, yet you tell us it's a horse's knee. How has this come about? And Johnson replied, ignorance, madam, pure ignorance. So if you like the sound of him, do go along to Dr. Johnson's house which I think is open every day except possibly Sunday, and have a look. The charitable trust which run the property have done their best to have it as much as possible exactly as it was in Johnson's day. Wood panelled rooms, period piece furniture, a wooden staircase, and definitely a scholarly atmosphere. I enjoyed this description of the museum which comes from London by Tube, so Christopher Wynne's book. Everything in the house has a connection to Dr Johnson. It goes on to list these Portraits of him, meeting Sarah Siddons, the actress. The fact that you can see some of his own manuscripts. 
Johnson's walking stick, letter case and portrait medallion. But as much as anything, it's for the atmosphere that you will enjoy the visit. Quote, Since the museum is slightly off the tourist trail and quite hard to find, the house rarely gets too full and there is usually ample time to sit quietly in the attic library pondering on Dr Johnson's great work. Sometimes you can even hear his nib scratching. A question much discussed is, can you actually admire Johnson? Well, yes, for his writing and his work on the dictionary, but for some of his attitudes, mm, maybe not so much. One of his famous sayings, for example, is, A woman's preaching is like a dog walking on its hind legs. It is not done well, but you are surprised to find it done at all. Boris Johnson, currently Prime Minister of Britain, of course, wrote of this too, describing the, quote, great harumphing voice of political incorrectness. A literary John Bull, whose views would today be considered outré to the point of unacceptability. He goes on to comment, it's hard to see how any modern Fleet Street editor would dare to employ him. And yet, some of the people who knew him were very fond of him and remarked on his kindness. We know, for example, that he had a very loving 20-year marriage to his wife Tetty and that when she died he was heartbroken. After that, he opened his house to a selection of people who probably wouldn't have been taken in anywhere else. There was an elderly blind poet, there was a surgeon trying to operate without a licence, there was a woman he'd rescued from prostitution, and he was known too for his views against slavery. One of the toasts he liked to make at the end of a meal was apparently, here's to the next insurrection of the Negroes in the West Indies. So that speaks in favour of him, no? And also, the thing I like best perhaps, is known for his great affection, to the point of sentimentality really, for his cat. James Boswell, his friend and biographer, wrote the following. I shall never forget the indulgence with which Dr Johnson treated Hodge, his cat, for he himself used to go out and buy oysters, lest the servants, having that trouble, should take a dislike to the poor creature. And Boswell describes a conversation he had with Johnson one day, when he saw Hodge climbing over Dr. Johnson and said to him, He's a fine cat. Johnson replied, Why, yes, sir, but I have had cats which I liked better than this one. And then, as if perceiving Hodge to be out of countenance, added, But he is a very fine cat, a very fine cat indeed. And I mention this particularly because if you go to visit Johnson's house in Gough Square, you will see a statue of Hodge himself just outside in the square sitting up very proudly, and at his feet, a pair of empty oyster shells. So Hodge has been immortalised, a very fine cat indeed. And my other recommendation for a visit to make in Fleet Street is St Bride's Church. There's been a church on the site for over 2,000 years, but the current one was built by no lesser person than Sir Christopher Wren. When it went up, it had the second highest steeple of all of Wren's churches, so second only to St Paul's, and there's a lovely story connected to the church and to the way it looked, and that concerns one William Rich, who was apprenticed to a baker, and promptly fell in love with his master's daughter. So as soon as he'd finished his apprenticeship, he told his master that he would like to set up his own business, and could he please marry his daughter. And because he was a baker, he wanted to make a special cake for the wedding feast, and he was thinking about what that might look like, when one day he looked up at the steeple of St Bride's Church, where in fact the wedding was going to take place, and then it hit him. He would make a layered cake, tiered and diminishing as it rose, just like the steeple. 
and such a good idea was esteemed to be that wedding cakes ever since have been made in that fashion. A big layer on the bottom, smaller ones as you go up. St Bride's has been a well-known church for centuries because it's on the road between London and Westminster, so people passed by a lot. It was actually in St Bride's churchyard that Winkin de Word, I do love that name, set up the first printing press. So it was around the church that publishing houses grew up, and that was the beginning of its connection with the world of the media. Not that anyone would have been using the word media, I don't think, in 1535, which is the year that Mr. de Ward was buried in the churchyard. There are a lot of literary connections to the church, so Samuel Pepys was born a few doors away, for example, and baptised here, and his brother Tom was buried here, as was the author Samuel Richardson. John Milton lived in a house actually in the churchyard, Dryden lived quite nearby, and the diarist John Evelyn came here to worship. And so it's had this long connection with the media and with journalism being right in the middle of the street where all the big newspapers had their offices. In the late 1980s, during the Middle East hostage crisis, it became the church to which journalists and those associated with them went to pray for John McCarthy to keep vigil for him while he was imprisoned in Beirut. And it was here in St Bride's when he was finally released in 1991 that the grand service of celebration was held. There have been services of commemoration for other journalists who were killed while carrying out their work. John Schofield for the BBC, for example, who was killed in Croatia. And the Wall Street Journal's Daniel Pearl, who was murdered by Al-Qaeda in 2002. When a driver employed by the Times in Iraq was killed in a bomb blast in Baghdad, it was two St Brides that the News International staff came to light candles of remembrance. It's also the church where funerals of well-known editors and journalists are quite often held. So, if you pop into St Brides, what should you look at? Well, the spire, of course, and the churchyard before you get inside, and then once you are in, have a look for the journalist's altar in the northeast corner first set up as a hostage altar when John McCarthy was being held, and where a candle burnt day and night throughout his captivity until the day when he was finally released. Have a look near the font for a bust of a little girl called Virginia Dare. Virginia's parents had married here in this church and then were some of the first emigrants to North Carolina. She was the very first child born to English emigrants there, that being in the year 1585. There are other connections between this church and America. The altar is enshrined in oak as a memorial to the Pilgrim Fathers, because one of them, one Edward Winslow, who had been a Fleet Street apprentice and whose parents had married here, became one of the leaders of the Mayflower expedition in 1620. And, later, he was three times elected Governor of Massachusetts. Make sure you go downstairs into the crypt, too, because down there you'll see a Roman mosaic pavement and in the northeast corner, a medieval chapel, which was actually discovered only when foundations were being dug for the present church, so in the 17th century, and which, in our century, in 2002 in fact, has been restored as a memorial to the Harmsworth family and the staff of associated newspapers who lost their lives in the First and Second World Wars. So again, that connection between the media and St Brides. Definitely an interesting stop-off if you're in the area. So that's pretty much it for today. Goodbye to Fleet Street, the Street of Ink, or if you want to underline the seedier side of some of the goings-on, the Street of Shame. I prefer the Street of Ink, I think. And I hope that if you go and visit, 
you'll be better informed than you might otherwise have been. So, until next week, when I'm proposing an episode on Victoria and Albert's London, which will be a good excuse to visit Kensington Palace and the V&A Museum and the Royal Albert Hall and various other places. Until then, though, thank you very much for listening today, and goodbye. Goodbye.